to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Toon. Good day. <laughs> <laughs> it is the Album Nerds Podcast. I'm Dude. Got Andy and Don here, as you already know. Guys, we talk about albums here on this podcast, don't we? I've heard that's true. Are we excited about this? Are we Are we pumped? I'm feeling good. Are we, are we lit? Lit's a thing, right? Used to be. Are we lit? Pretty early in the morning to be lit, bro. I don't know. Not that one. The one where stuff is, I think that means something is cool now, too. I don't Every know. Every day we lit. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right, all right. So here we are, Album Nerds Podcast. Three guys love talking about albums in the album format, how it all comes together. And that's of particular note on this week's episode. If you remember previously on the Album Nerds Podcast, the wheel was reborn, resurrected, you could say. A new version, version 3.0. Uh, yeah, and she's back in kind of a bionic form here. And uh, what we do is uh, plug in some, some terms into her database. And uh, yeah, we have a couple rooms dedicated to her. as a cooling system. All the lights dim in, in, in the dude's house when they turn around. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> happens with my wife, too. Hey, now. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, anyway, so we. Uh, Pushed the button last week, and uh, she spit out this little little tape, little piece of paper came out of her her side, and it just simply read uh, two words. Yes, those two words were rock opera, and so yeah, we're going to present uh, three albums this week that that would be considered rock operas. Uh, a rock opera is a, a collection of of rock music songs with lyrics that relate to a common story. So unlike, you know, many of the, the concept albums that, that we've done, uh, what differentiates, I, I guess, a, a rock opera would be, um, that it's not just a theme that, uh, is present throughout an album, but there's an actual story or, or a narrative that, that flows through, throughout all of it. Yeah. So we're, we're each going to present a, a rock opera. We're going to do our question of the week. Uh, and then we're going to, you know, return to the computer room and, uh, uh, and talk to the wheel. <laughs> Choo-choo-choose me? All right, all right, all right. For my rock opera selection, going with a, let's say, lesser-known artist in the in the, the space, a um, guy by the name of Mike Watt. He put out an album back in October of 1997 entitled Contemplating the Engine Room. Let's play a bit of the opening cut. This is In the Engine Room. Alright, so Mike Watts, this is second solo studio album. Uh, you may remember he put out a record a couple years prior, I think it was 1995, called Ball Hog or Tugboat, which was pretty popular, I guess, at the time. Had a lot of like um, stars on it from like the, the grunge movement. Have you, either of you guys heard that record or familiar with? Mr. Watts. No, I, I'm. I've I've heard the name before. Uh, I've heard of the. Is it the Minutemen? Um, but no, mm-hmm. I, I was you know uh, pretty much unfamiliar with with him and you know anything he's done. I thought it was Firehose. Yeah, I was in two uh, two bands prior to this. Well, Minutemen wow. was the first, and Firehose was kind of the second incantation of some of those members. Um, dude, I think you actually turned me on to Mike Watt back in the day. That Ball Hog Tugboat record has like Eddie Vedder and. Dave Grohl and Thurston Moore and a bunch of big names on it. 
that's why I got it. Uh, I hadn't heard of Mike Watt. I hadn't heard Firehose. I hadn't, you know, Minutemen, none of that stuff. Um, but I got this strictly because Eddie Vedder was on it for the most part. But <laughs> Dave Grohl and the others made it interesting as well. But yeah, Beastie Boys members are on this. It's very eclectic, very strange. But I had the Eddie Vedder song on every mixtape I was making at the time. So <laughs> there you go. Nice. Yeah. So he used like kind of the kind of publicity or I guess kind of the, you know, the, the cred he got from that record to put out this much more personal record that just features him and, and two bandmates. Uh, he plays bass and sings. There's also drums and a lead guitar on this record. The story, we should really get into this story. So it's kind of a multi-layer story, which the more I dug into, the more I thought about, I've really found quite touching and, and quite moving by it. I guess as I went through his record multiple times over the last week or so here. The 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 concept of the record is takes place in kind of like a on a navy ship down in in the the engine room, the boiler room, uh, where these guys are keeping the ship going. A lot of those stories and and uh, anecdotes that he tells about this this crew on this naval ship are taken from his father, uh, who grew up in the navy and there is he was kind of a his family moving around a lot as they were growing up and his dad, you know, they never really related to each other growing up until him and his dad kind of started noticing some of the similarities between what Mike was doing on the road with his band and his bandmates in the Minutemen and what his dad were, his experience kind of going from port to port with this crew of guys. And so I think it has some really nice parallels with, with that aspect and just kind of like bringing him and his dad closer together and this kind of underlying tone of just understanding each other. Even though he had very different lives, they kind of did have some similarities. The guys in the record are really more representative of previous members of the Minutemen. And it's more of kind of like a thank you and a tribute to to them and the, the time they had together. Uh, one of those members by the name of D. Boone, he he passed away in the mid-80s in a car accident. And Mike was very close with him. And so this record is kind of a, a tribute to him and the stories they had together and the relationships they had. Um, why don't we play a cut from the middle of the record that entitled The Boiler Man. This is actually about uh, D. Boone and uh, kind of his character in the story. I'm a lucky man. That man, hell of a man, boiler man. Boil, boil, boiler man. Boil, boil, boiler man. Isn't that fun? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like a children's nursery rhyme right most of the time. <laughs> so, the, the basic story is these three guys are hanging out on the ship a lot and. They come into p- different ports and they go into town and get drunk. On uh, one of these excursions, um, one of the band members sleepwalks and walks off like the end of the pier and ends up getting drowned in and getting chopped up in the propeller of, I assume, of the submarine. A tragic ending. And I guess it's supposed to represent uh, this D. Boone and uh, his character and, and how he passed away in real life. I would have liked it if it was a little more fantastical you know like the sleepwalking and falling off the ship but what if there was a kraken or (laughs) uh you know mermaid or something yeah right the vocals mirror the bass that's true yeah which is weird (laughs) that's what made it sometimes a challenging listen was Lyrically, not a ton of variety. I'm on a boat. I'm on a boat. I got a sailor, man. He's got a tan. It's like, okay. <laughs> and the similarity of his vocals with the bass is just... Yeah, it's a lot of low end. Yeah, I mean, you know, he doesn't have like an amazing singing voice by any means. I mean, he, he has like, probably about three notes he can hit. 
or even tries to. Yeah, he might actually be like tone deaf. (laughs) (laughs) It's very possible. Um, For a rock opera, it doesn't have a lot of drama in its sound. I think my favorite part of the album is just the the bass playing. You know, it makes sense that that's going to take the lead on an album uh, with a you know a bass player being solo. But you know, I, I just like when when an instrument like that, where we we tend to look at it as sort of a limited instrument. You know, it's usually just providing uh, rhythm and there's only four strings um, but you actually you can do a, a lot with it you know we've talked about you know other records with you know joy division and the cure uh, you know where I think they're doing interesting things with, with with that instrument and using it in a more melodic way I, I think he has a unique way of, of of playing unlike other bass players who get more melodic he tends to still stay low on the scale, I guess, you know, it's all the, the bottom strings, but yeah, you know, I just love how the, the bass carries the, the album and cause th- there aren't many albums that, that, that really do that. Uh, and I think I read something about, he even tuned the, the bass differently for this. I think maybe the, the, the bottom string, he tunes to D instead of E, which I guess would make it a, a step lower, right? Yeah. I read he had done that. Well, a couple of different things to give himself a challenge, but I also had read that he had done that specifically for this, for D Boone to kind of uh, as a tribute to him to like, as kind of like a musical in joke sort of to <laughs> give him another shout out. And even realize I'm not a huge Minuteman fan myself, but at the end of a lot of these songs are little callbacks to some of the, the some of the Minuteman songs. They play like little snippets from them to kind of help almost give an homage to, to that time and that those guys. I thought that was pretty cool. It, it feels like a very simple record on first listen, but like an onion, as you dig into it more, there's a lot of layers that, that uh, Mr. Watt put into this record that, I, for me, were really rewarding to kind of to peel back. I think the storytelling, to me, was so unique. Just the compassion that he has for his bandmates, I thought it was so touching. I like this even more than the ball hog or tugboat record. Personally, I, I think it's a little more interesting. Mike Watts contemplating the engine room it is unlike any other rock opera you're gonna hear and i think you can say that pretty comfortably <laughs> check it out excuse me i'd like to ask you a few questions we're here to ask ourselves a question <laughs> rock operas and musicals have a lot of overlap preferences experiences <laughs> that you may have <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a huge musical fan. There are a couple that I will fuck with from time to time. What? <laughs> <laughs> what an odd choice of words. A little, a little hangover from uh, the Wu Tang yeah. episode. <laughs> I went to a couple operas. And I really, honestly, enjoyed them quite a bit. I thought they were dramatic as hell for sure, but amazing also to kind of experience. It's, it's so like there's so much emotion wrapped up in their singing that it's hard not to get caught up, even if you can't necessarily understand the story. But one thing, one thing that was interesting, I did go. I went to the opera in Cooperstown, New York. I saw Madame Butterfly there, and they had almost like you were watching subtitles in a movie. They had like the English and like this little electronic banner to help you follow the story, and that that added a lot. So if you're going to an opera, see if they have uh, subtitles. <laughs> yeah, that way, if you go to the opera, you can pretend you're at home watching TV instead of being at the opera. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Don? I used to do, you know, in, in like 
middle school and high school, I, w- I was involved in a, a little bit of, bit of theater. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I like musicals. All right. I, I don't like all of them and some of them are, you know, just total cheese. Um, but some of them I, I really like. And I saw Les Mis like on a ninth grade field trip and I was actually blown away by it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that, that was a, a, a great musical. As far as like rock operas go, I mean, I've, I've always liked them. Sometimes those I, I think can be over the top and, and can be a little cheesy. I, I did see Roger Waters perform the, the wall, uh, about 10 years ago or so. And that was, you know, just a really cool experience. So, so I like it, but I, I think, uh, it's very easy for, for it all to, to go wrong and for it to be, you know, just too much. Yeah. There's a fine line there. Yeah. I mean, I musicals, no. For instance, Les Mis, ew. But I saw the movie. I saw the movie with Wolverine and the explosions with no songs. Well, they had songs, but I ignored them because there was explosions. So then that was okay. When you say Wolverine, you don't mean the actual X Men character. No, I don't know that dude that plays Wolverine. Huge, huge Ackman. Yeah. <laughs> huge Ackman. Anyway, um, the rock operas I enjoy because you can picture it in your head when it makes it to the screen or to the stage then someone else's vision of it is there and sometimes for me just the theatricality of the movement and stuff ruins it because it's not just a story told to music instead it's people's singing while they're taking a shower or whatever or brushing their teeth they have to sing a song about it like i don't i don't want that in my life rock operas good musicals yuck <laughs> how about you folks out there what do you think about musicals and rock operas and all that comes in between why don't you hit us up on the socials and on the album nerds discord okay it's it's bad form on on my part but i'm actually coming to the table two weeks in a row with a a pink floyd related project uh my uh, my selection for a, a rock opera is uh uh, Roger Waters, uh, Radio Chaos, and it's spelled, you know, it, it's an abbreviation. It, it's like, uh, radio call letters, K-A-O-S, right? So every, every radio station west of the Mississippi, you know, starts with a K. Uh, here on the East Coast, they all start with, with, uh, a W. Is that how that works? I had no idea. It was East Coast, West Coast. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I knew that too. My dad was in radio, so I learned that early. Yeah, there is an ex- an exception in in Pittsburgh because it was like the first um, commercial radio station. So I think whatever station it is in Pittsburgh, like KDKA or something, is the the only one east of the Mississippi with K call letters. Sorry, uh, <laughs> the whole radio. Yeah, radio. <laughs> uh, anyway, so. Um, we didn't really get into the cast of characters in Pink Floyd, uh, in our last episode, but, uh, you know, Roger Waters, um, you know, after the original leader and frontman, Sid Barrett, uh, left the band, you know, Roger Waters slowly usurped creative control of, of the band finally to, to the point where, you know, it was no longer sustainable. The, the last Pink Floyd album, the, the final cut really feels like a Roger Waters solo album. This album, Radio Chaos is his second solo album since, since leaving Pink Floyd. Um, well, you know, before I get into the story, let me, uh, l- let's do a, a quick clip. Uh, here's uh, who needs information. Just 
Uh, I think I neglected to to say uh, w- when this was released, but I bet from that that sound you can you know guess within a, like five years when it was released. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is this is totally late late eighties Pink Floyd is what it sounds like to me. Yep, June nineteen eighty seven. Well, why don't I get you into the the story here? And it's a somewhat complicated one. One I guess it's one that you wouldn't figure out without having notes. Uh, and I believe the original LP you know did come with the what do you call it a libretto or, or something like the actual sort of narrative uh, of the of the opera but anyway so you have billy uh 23 year old uh guy from from wales was in a wheelchair i guess uh suffered from uh cerebral palsy also unable to speak uh, sounds a like a lot like tommy actually but so he has this this special ability to to hear radio waves, you know. So basically, he picks up you know radio signals uh, in his in his brain. Uh, lives with a, a brother Benny uh, and his wife and, and kids. Benny works at a coal mine, gets fired uh, because of market forces. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I read that yeah. too. But with the narrative, there's so much detail and specificity here. I'm a little disappointed. There's just market forces. That's all I get. <laughs> yeah. There was like a strike or something. There wasn't there more. I mean, there's a lot. Of, he wasn't a lot of detail on that. And of course, I mean, um, you know, Roger Waters comes, you know, from the the left wing of the political spectrum. You know, so he's, you know, coming from the uh, more socialist uh, perspective here. Yeah. So Benny gets fired. He and Billy go out, <laughs> go out drinking, uh, and I guess they pass uh, an electronics store. Margaret Thatcher, you know, who was prime minister at the time, is on the TV screens. It riles Benny up. I think he breaks into the store, steals a cordless phone goes out to the mines and is like protesting is standing on a, a bridge and then coincidentally some taxi driver dies from you know some piece of concrete you know landing <laughs> on him from from a <laughs> drop from a, a bridge ahead so it's like a, a weird coincidence that that this taxi driver dies and uh, <laughs> Benny goes to jail for it Benny's wife can't handle it and sends Billy to to LA to, to live with his uncle. Billy starts, you know, playing with this cordless phone that, that they stole. He, you know, figures out it's kind of similar to, to radio. He experiments with it, um, gets access to computers and speech synthesizers. Uh, he learns to speak. He ends up calling a, a radio station in, in LA, tells him his, his life story. Um, and so, the, you know, the album is full of those little, you know, radio vignettes with um, Jim Ladd, who's an actual radio personality. And then uh, Billy ends up hacking into this, you know, the military system and, you know, convinces the world that, there's imminent destruction, like all the missiles are going to, you know, blow up across the world. But then, you know, it turns out to be a hoax. And then the world kind of finds peace because they're, you know, after being coming so close to destruction, you know, they figure out what's important in life. Yeesh. So, yeah, it sounds like the wall, too, to me. I mean, kind of similar. There's a lot of similarities. for Yeah. Sure. So for my three words, I did success or failure because I can't really decide if this album is a success or or a failure. It's so gaudy. There's so much 80s cheese in it. It's such an odd story. But yet it's still, I don't know. I mean, I still think there's there's some good songs in here. Uh, It's probably the most accessible of those like first three Roger Waters solo albums. Um, you know, musically anyway. Yeah, here's a, a clip from, you know, one of my favorite songs on the album, um, Me or Him. Mm, how you want me to talk to the 
Sounds like you got a little Zamfir pan flute going on in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, all throughout, it just feels like he borrowed from himself, from Pink Floyd. He borrowed from The Who in many ways, especially the tone of that song reminded me of, of some of you know, the songs when, when Tommy, Can You Hear Me and all that stuff. It just, the fact that I'd never heard of this to me told me a lot about its impact because I mean, you're a Roger Waters lover, so you're aware of it, but I completely missed this. I mean, I, I enjoy the, the thought, the idea, but again, it was so complicated in parts. We could have gotten there without so much exposition about about the early part of the story. The important part was when he got the phone and then was starting to communicate with people. That was the important part to me. The the strike and the mine and whatever. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of felt similarly that the, the pacing was a little bit odd. Like the, like you said, the story doesn't really start until about two-thirds of the way through the record. But regardless, I think he has some really cool, big ideas that he's trying to jam into this story. It's ideas that Pink Floyd has explored in the past, but... I still found them really compelling, and it's it's complicated. I wish the story was clearer. I read I read all the lyrics, and I still missed about two thirds of what you explained. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I didn't catch any, a lot of that. Uh, so supposedly, I think Waters wanted it to be a double album, so there are other songs out there that I think would have filled in the narrative better. It's because there's like some missing pieces in there. Yeah, it feels like it could be longer. <laughs> surprisingly, but. He's like, he has so much to say. It's about, you know, the ec- economic equality. There's this, obviously this big threat of, of like nuclear disaster and like the Cold War and stuff going on. But there's, there's some good musical elements that like, like, like you have on the wall that I think are really awesome. Even though you had that big glossy 80s production, which is always hard for me to swallow, there's still like some great um, saxophone and some great backing vocals like you'd expect from, from Pink Floyd or Pink Floyd type sounds. If you want to hear a little bit of the saxophone and get a, a, uh, another feel of that that uh, '80s, uh, you know, that '80s rock sound, uh, here's a clip of uh, Sunset Strip. Oh, sorry, I think I played the wrong clip. That's Rob Lowe from yeah. Saint Elmo's Fire. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say G.E. Smith from the Saturday Night Live band, but that one I think is more intentionally like it sounds that way because that song is about the sunset strip in la and i picture that being sort of the the la sound another interesting thing about the album the uh, the cover art has morse code on it and the morse code actually spells out the the song titles which is cool i was disappointed to find out that the the morse code that you hear you know throughout the album at the beginning and the end i, I don't think that actually spells anything out well how hard would that have been I, I to know. do come on yep <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, Roger Waters' Radio Chaos. And now a word from our sponsor, us. This is friendship. Pure, unadulterated friendship. Oh, yeah. Hey, music fans. Do you love the album format? Do you love the rock operas? Tell us a story from a great rock opera. We'd love to hear it. Go to the Album Nerds Discord to do so. Albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can talk with like-minded music nerds and suggest topics for upcoming shows, as well as get a sneak peek on what we're working on next. So check it out. Albumnerds.com slash Discord. David Bowie. 
I'm sorry. David Bowie. <laughs> sorry. You done? Trying- <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm bringing what I what I think about when I think about rock operas. I for some reason it's all I think about the 70s largely kooky characters, sci-fi. So I'm bringing in Ziggy Stardust. The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars by David Bowie. Came out June 16th, 1972. So why don't we start off with a little introduction to Ziggy. So here's a clip from Ziggy Stardust. So where were the spiders? All right, so that was a little bit of Ziggy Stardust where David Bowie is describing how Ziggy looks, including his uh, snow white tan. I can relate, so I like that part. <laughs> this album is the fifth studio album by english musician david bowie the three words i chose were glam sci-fi if you make it one word and theatrical but not entirely theatrical i mean it's mostly a rock record i think the character the bigger than life character and the loose story are what kind of are what make it a rock opera basically Ziggy Stardust is a androgynous bisexual rock star who's sent to Earth as a savior before impending apocalyptic disaster. Ziggy wins the hearts of fans, falls from grace, succumbs to his own ego, and the character supposedly was inspired by numerous musicians. Vince Taylor, Iggy Pop, others. Guys, David Bowie. Love him? Hate him? I think I know the answer. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard not to love David Bowie. I mean... Especially this era. I mean, any era, but this is pretty classic Bowie. Yeah. Uh, you know, David Bowie's just a, you know, a unique creative force. I've always liked him. You know, like every year, I think I add a, a couple of, of Bowie albums sort of to my, you know, to, to my collection, but I'm still like going through it. I, I haven't heard it all. And so there's just so many different periods, so many different sounds and, and characters. Um, you know, it's just, you know, quite a, quite a journey. So if you're ever like stuck for things to listen to, just, you know, just find a, a Bowie album. <laughs> yeah. Cause you can find all types of different music in David Bowie's catalog, industrial rock, pop rock, glam rock sort of your more traditional 60s rock. So, yeah, I mean, when I when I was growing up, I liked the pop version of David Bowie the most just because of my age, you know, the 80s, the 80s, mid-80s Bowie. But I was always fascinated by the Ziggy Stardust thing because it looked like Kiss or something to me. I didn't quite understand it. So he created this character to kind of send up the craziness of what rock stars, the egos, and, and apparently this uh, Vince Taylor had 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 hits in the 50s and then was started a cult where he was supposed to be a, he thought he was a god from outer space or something uh a lot of the visuals were taken from japanese art so david bowie had this way of just taking all these little pieces from all sorts of different stuff and, and plugging it in now uh, apparently the story was not necessarily intended moonage daydream ziggy stardust lady stardust and Starman, those are, those are the main songs, but the story is that he's here to save us because we have five years left. And I guess that was applied after the album. The songs were mostly written and recorded. So why don't we listen to a little bit of five years and get a sense for how the album opens and starts that over. loose story. We had five years left to cry in. This guy wept and told us. Yeah, I love the sound of that song, the way that... Uh, uses the vocals and the effect the emotion of it sounds 
kind of like giving up, you know? Interesting place to start a record. Yeah. But, you know, it also, in listening to this album over and over again, this song and others reminded me a lot of what John Lennon was doing at the time in his solo albums. Sonically, not not lyrically. Similar vocal. That's right. It sounds just like the first track on, like, Plastic Ono Band, right? Yeah. Good call. But it did, it, it evoked that time. And I think I read that Bowie was a big John Lennon fan, so it stands to reason. But there was definitely some similarities, and maybe it was a, a back and forth between the two. You never know, uh, much like the Beatles had with, with the Beach Boys and other bands where there was this sort of light competition. So Ziggy Stardust, one year or so, he tours with it and whatever, and then makes an announcement at the end of the last show that Ziggy's done. Now, thankfully, he did that because a 70-year-old Bowie at the end of his life still wearing that hair and trying to be Ziggy Stardust would have been pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> his his creativity forced him to be bored with things quickly, which is a was a part of why he's so prolific. Sorry, just a quick comment on, on what you were saying there. That can, you know, be tough as a fan. You know, when you when you like an artist who suddenly gets bored with their persona and swears off their, you know, <laughs> the thing that, that made them successful. But then or it often ends up going in good places anyway, or you end up with better art that way. But as a fan, you know, that can that can hurt when suddenly somebody doesn't want to play their, their old songs or, you know, they want to change directions. Especially if you're a young kid at the time and you're like, oh, my God, I love Ziggy Stardust. And then you're like, I'm never doing it again. <laughs> ah, no. Okay, so the song that was played at the end of his last show, Ziggy Stardust, was called Rock and Roll Suicide. Let's listen to a little clip of that. Rock and Roll Suicide. Get too old to lose it. Too young to choose So that uh, is the closer for the album and the closer for Ziggy. Great song. So simple. So unlike the rest of the album in terms of its... Uh, it, it doesn't have all that fancy stuff going on. Pure Bowie right there. And uh, I will ask this question then. Ziggy Stardust, Rise and Fall, right here. What do we think? Um, I mean, it's it's a classic. I, I don't really have anything bad to say about it. <laughs> I think what I think what listening back to it, you know, for this show, what hit me most was the storytelling is, is loose at best. But I think I think what really sells it is is sort of the sound that they're generating. And, and, and Bowie's performance is, is great as well, obviously. But it's more about the vibe. It sounds very futuristic, and it sounds sort of from outer space I, I, at times, for sure. And, you know, it really... I know the story is not supposed to be about self-referential self about Bowie, but he, like, fits his character so beautifully, and it really... I would believe he's from another planet and the way he presents himself and how different he is than everybody else. And he was kind of like a savior to a lot of people, especially at this time. So yeah, I totally buy into it and I, it's, it's amazing. My wife is kind of pissed because uh, this is her favorite album. She's like, how could you not pick my favorite album for the show? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do love it. I think it's great. And we listen to it all the time in our house. So. It's a complete album. And the way that it pulls off a story is that it's a character there's a character doing it, so therefore you've got a built-in story without even having to have all the threads that Roger Waters was trying to frantically tie together. You go, okay, Spaceman, 
we throw some space into a couple songs and yeah. we're all good. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's a good point. So it, it doesn't have to be that. You don't have to listen to it as a as a op, rock opera or a concept album. You can also enjoy it for what it is, which is a kick-ass rock record from the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Garth Brooks did the same thing to perfection when he did the, the, the Chris Gaines experiment. <laughs> oh, man. Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I doubt any of our listeners will. Um, I this did. be the first time anyone's ever compared. <laughs> Chris Gaines. So uh, I, uh, yeah. Th- so that was an odd thing. There's old Saturday Night Live clips of of Garth Brooks hosting and then performing the songs as this character, Chris Gaines. Very weird. We'll keep it short here. I had to go buy the CD because I ha- you can't find it on streaming services because Garth doesn't want it there. Anyway, <laughs> thanks a lot. Donna. Sorry, sidetrack. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right, so back to the <laughs> back. Oh God, well, how do we even come back from that? How do we come back from this? <laughs> Don just tanked the show. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Go check out the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. It is just awesome. David Bowie at one of his many peaks. So go enjoy. What did we learn today, nerds? Hmm. Hmm. Yes. I think why I love these types of albums so much, and I hope we do some more of these on future episodes. Like I would keep this on the on the wheel permanently if it was up to me. There's so much care and attention to detail in the storytelling, um, for the most part, that you don't get on a typical album. Like it feels so cohesive, and it's intended to be listened to from start to finish. And there's an arc to it. I mean, you can have a grand message on a regular album, but I think in this format, you can really get across like a point in a larger than life sense that you wouldn't get on a regular structured album. So I love it. I think it's, it's super cool. Uh, they can be cheesy, but they can also be very powerful. I, I love them too. I mean, did this kind of start with, with Sergeant Peppers? I think so. You know, and which, you know, I think is another case where they basically just had a, a, a beginning song and then the reprise and then they just kind of decided that all these other songs can kind of fit in, um, you know, under this, you know, fictional band playing them or something. But I feel like that was a pretty loose concept that they kind of put together after the fact or something. But a cool thing about the, the Bowie album is I, I, I like the irony of, of him kind of commenting on sort of pop or rock star stardom, um, you know, being that, that character, but then also playing it out in, in real life. And there's like an irony there. I feel like U2 was kind of doing that, uh, as well during that, that zoo TV period. I think Pink Floyd did that, you know, with, with the wall as well. Um, so, you know, I, I, I love that. Well, it's kind of a safe way to indulge. If it's in character, yeah. and then you can right. put that character away, hopefully, and become <laughs> yourself again. Yeah, uh, what I learned really was just that there are a lot more rock operas and, you know, like Meatloaf and all sorts of stuff that that's 70s, this is 70s. That's kind of what I thought about hair and uh, musicals like that, rock operas like that, uh, Tommy. But there's like the Mike Watt, I had no idea about these things continuing into other decades and then being used in different ways instead of the grandiose sort of way that I've always pictured rock operas and Rocky Horror Picture Show and that kind of thing. So it was really cool to experience some different takes on a genre that I 
not it's not exactly a genre, but a grouping of albums that I had pegged one way. So that was cool. Thanks, fellas. And that's one to grow on. All right, it's time to uh, flip on the generator and uh, put in the punch cards. Get that old musical wheel of destiny. Get the hard drive spinning. All right, uh, give it a give it a spin. Let's fire this thing up. Hair metal. Hair metal. Hair metal. Yes. <laughs> Hair metal. Oh yeah. Interesting. Okay, so this has to be from a certain time period, or anybody who has long hair and plays metal. Come on, Andy. Hair what? metal. You know what hair metal is. I do. I don't want to pick out an album with that, though. Yeah. Well, you're going to have to. <laughs> yeah. The wheel says to do it, you do it. Rat or something? Yeah. Rat. Cinderella. Poison. Poison. Warrant. Basically, huge hairspray, electric guitars, and power ballads. Come on, boys. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> I don't know, I'm like scratching their heads. Like, what do we get ourselves into here? <laughs> okay, well, what's your uh, favorite rock opera? Who's your favorite hair metal band? What else are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com or leave a voicemail at 585-210-2454. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Album Nerds. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. All right, so we'll see you in a week. I'm gonna have uh, I'm gonna need a wig because I'm bald. But Andy and Don are gonna do up their hair real nice, nice for Hair Metal Week. We'll see you then. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Wait, don't we need a fat lady to sing? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and sing. Close the curtain. <laughs> 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 All right. <laughs> I don't know. I guess that's the end. <laughs> <laughs>